available to you, then you've got a base that I can let this in for. So anyway, the book on I'm okay, you're okay, has the okay corral, which is a quadrant, like a window with four panes. And you have the I'm okay, and then I have I'm not okay. And on the other side, it's you're okay, and you're not okay. And so basically that I'm okay or I'm not okay is the boundary between uh, the top dog and the bottom dog or between the winner and the loser. And in our society, we are all taught to be losers. Okay. And so the language that you were using was the language of a loser. Well, it's okay. <laughs> uh, and so begin to listen to the language that you're using because that will determine uh, the, the mental attitude. Are you going to be okay or not? Or are you going to remain not okay and use the language that not okay people are using? And then there's the other side is, is that I'm okay, you're okay. This is where relationships come in. And if we do not have a good relationship within our own mind, that if we're at war with ourselves, then we're also going to be at war with everything and outside also. But if we're at peace with everything on the inside, then we will be at peace with everything on the outside also. So we have to get that thing straightened out, to get our attitude together, to change it from being a victim to being a winner, from being an, an underdog to being the top dog, which was the language, by the way, of um, Gestalt therapy, uh, Fritz Perls. Perhaps you have heard of him. He was very mm -hmm. famous a lot of time at Esselman. And finally, we've got somebody that you recognize. Okay, Fritz Perls. Do you know much about him? Uh, well, I know he was, uh, I think, the founder of uh, Gestalt therapy. Yes, and and the Gestalt uh, part of the the practice method or practice therapy was to have an empty chair. So the therapist is quiet and an empty chair, three chairs in the room, and that the uh, empty chair is whoever that the client is projecting, right? And then big jokes were made about it in uh, 2016 when, um, I think that's when it was, uh, Clint Eastwood was talking about, uh, no, it was uh, 2012 uh, when he was using the empty chair of uh, Barack Obama and putting words in Barack Obama's mouth because he had an empty chair there at the RNC uh, during the election. Uh, and uh, that's when I figured out that Clint Eastwood does not understand what Fritz Perls was doing with the empty chair. <laughs> so, in any case, there's there's some side points to that. The empty chair, somewhere along the line, became giving the client the ability to use a pillow to beat that chair. Because he was so frustrated and angry with Aunt Susie for the argument that he, and she got us, she gave him the spanking when he was four, 
And so that violent kind of therapy stuff started in the later 70s. It gave rise to encounter groups and that kind of stuff. And what was happening is people were going home after having therapy and beating up their whole family. Once that anger came out and get, got permission from the therapist to let it out, they went home and did some damage. And so they had to reevaluate what they were doing there with that part of the gestalt that Chris Perros had come up with. But in any case, there was actually a side industry about that where they had batons and helmets and boxing gloves and all kinds of stuff for people to buy that stuff out. That whole industry went right out of business because the psychologists didn't buy that stuff anymore because they didn't want to have those encounter groups. They figured out that no, having clients fight with each other is not the right way to go. You need them to be uh, joyful with each other and to become friends, that I'm okay, you're okay. So in that case, that in that gestalt, I'm okay, but they're not okay, and I need to go beat the hell out of them. Rather than I'm okay and you're okay also, which is the win-win situation when both people are friends and both people are respectful of one another as winners. But very few of us are ever raised to be a winner. We're almost always raised to be losers. In fact, we were born that way. Every tender infant is insecure. All they have is sensory touch and everything feels painful. That's why babies cry a lot. I didn't shut up until I was 35. But as a tender infant, we pick up a lot of wrong information. And one of the things that we pick up very easily is, is that I am not in charge here. That I can't even feed myself. And so during that oral stage of life, we are all stuck in a loser's mentality. That's where abandonment issues come in. And our, our whole world is uh, about, I need your help. I need mommy to nurture me. But she doesn't nurture me, I die. I can't nurture myself, okay? So we are born in that victim's mentality. Where is it and what is it in our society that helps people come out of that victimhood? Or are we actually kept in it our whole lives? Where do we have a rite of passage where people actually grow up or are expected to grow up and be an adult and able to handle themselves and no longer be a child? Does religion help? No, religion wants to keep you a child. Religion wants to say you need that passage Jesus on the dashboard of your truck or you'll crash into a tree. You can't drive that truck without Jesus. As a metaphor. <laughs> so they sell you a plastic Jesus every week. You got to pay. Okay, so the Christianity is built upon keeping people victims. How about government? They want to either keep you needy or you need this from the government or to keep you angry at and racist for all of those immigrants who are coming to take your jobs and anybody else that you can hate. So I need this is from the victim, and I hate you 
and I need to take back America, that's also a victim's position. That winners don't bother with politics because they know that it's just, you know, a bunch of greedy old men uh, um, victimizing all the losers in the world. And so uh, there's very few winners because there's no rite of passage. In some cultures, there is a rite of passage. One uh, that I know of, especially from the Tuscaroras, which is in Northern uh, New York State, there's a big Tuscarora reservation up there. And in the old days, they would send out the young buck out into the wilderness for 30 days. He had to manage it on his own out there. And when he came back 30 days later, he was a man. Another rite of passage way, way back when was when does when does a little boy leave his mommy and the uh, the hunters of uh, the gatherers and go hunting with the men? And when is that actually a rite of passage or a change of lineage? And so this is what the Buddhist uh, monkhood is all about: is to give a young man a chance at the age of 20, to grow up <laughs> and to become a champion, to become a, a lion, to become uh, uh, the attitude of can do, becoming successful in one's life, rather than remaining in that victimhood of things are hard and they're tough and I need help and I need that government and I need that religion and I need that education and I need all of those products all of that materialism that big business has to sell. That's why I call it the grab, G-R-E-B, grab, the government, the religion, the education, and big business are all trying to keep each person individually victimized in the victimhood's position. So how do we come out of that victimization? That's what the teachings of the Buddha is really all about. It's how to come out of that victimization. And the way that we do is by recognizing when we're having victim thoughts and victim attitude and change it immediately. That's why it's such a good idea for me to ask the students, how is your practice? They will immediately either jump right into winner's position and they're gotten it going, they're getting their mojo, they remember to practice, or they come back as a victim. So, now after all of that, let's ask again, how's your practice? Good. Good! <laughs> How do you feel? Feel nice. Okay. Just had a student came back and said, I feel good, which is the James Brown meditation. Do you know James Brown? No. Um, <clears throat> a bit of interesting point is, is that he was Al Sharpton's mentor. Mm. He was a very, very excellent stage performer, and he was really good at being in the moment that I very much appreciated him. Um, and so uh, he had a song 
that goes, I feel good. Like I knew I would now. I feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that's fine. Like I knew I would now. So good. So good. I feel good. You probably heard that song before, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Well, let that be your mantra. Allow yourself to feel good. Tell yourself that you can feel good. Work yourself into feeling good. That we're going to actually, the way that Anapanasati is, uh, is constructed is, is that we spend a lot of time looking at the body the way that it is now, waking it up, experiencing the body through the breathing, and relaxing it so that the body feels safe, secure, relaxed, comfortable. And then we would, you work that with the mind. And then the, together with that, we begin to change the way we feel. Instead of feeling insecure, we feel secure. We talk ourselves into feeling secure. We get the body in a secure state. This is a, a side point is you probably heard about uh, things like the LSD and ayahuasca need a guide. Okay, the guide's job is to keep the people safe because if they get prayerful, they will freak out because whatever mm-hmm. drugs are in yeah. is going to tremendously expand that fear. Mm-hmm. So the practice of Anapanasati is, is that we've got to intentionally make things feeling safe. The body feels safe. The mind talks about being safe in a silly kind of way. Like there are no alligators, there's no crocodiles, there's no um, uh, billy goats, there are no uh, boogeymen. The bear is not in the closet and everything is safe here. We don't even have any Russian politicians. We can feel safe. Okay, so we talk ourselves into feeling safe and then being in an actual safe place like the room that you're in really doesn't have any dangers at all. So you can actually be in a physically safe place. And then you talk yourself into feeling safe. Guess what? We begin to actually feel safe. And by doing so along the way, we begin to experience anxieties and recognize how they're related to the body so that we can use the breathing to breathe that stuff out and come back to a state of homeostasis with the body and then continue to get the the feeling so that we feel safe, we feel secure, we feel comfortable and we feel satisfied. Safe, secure, comfortable and satisfied. Those are the definitions of the Pali word sukha which is exactly opposite of Dukkha. How could you be in distress if you're safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied? That's the end of Dukkha right there. But there's an actual added ingredient, and that is is that when we do this over and over and over and over again, we gain a confidence that we can do it over and over and over again that we gain confidence that we can do this when we need to do it. No matter how obstructed or how freaked out or how dangerous the situation is, I can come right out of my feelings of danger and handle the situation with a plum, with wisdom. Because I've got that confidence. 
And that's the Samuel San Papa part of the Eightfold Noble Path that most people don't understand. That's when we change from the victim into the winner. Go up. And the Anapanasati practice is a direct method for doing that. And along the way with that, you feel a high peak of not just satisfaction and success, but a wealth of success. Wow, how good can I feel? <gasps> so we have those high peak moments also. And so this is the practice of Anapanasati. So we keep practicing because we remember to practice. And we remember to practice over and over and over again. And we remember to practice, which means to get the body comfortable, safe, secure, relaxed, and breathing well, alive, and getting the mind fit for work also by making the body do all of these things, as well as talking ourselves into feeling safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied, and successful. But this is what the practice is all about. And it fits really, really well with the teachings of uh, uh, Eric Burns. In the sense that the child ego state that he talks about, which is the id from Freud, the child ego state is those feelings that are in fact kind of response to the environment that we're in. That we don't have, really have any control of our feelings. That we see and feel, we hear and we think and we feel, but the feeling is generally the response and that we don't really have any control over it. That's why in our language, we say things like I'm afraid or I'm terrified or I'm uh, uh, frustrated or I'm sad, when in fact, you are not any of those things. The sadness comes because it's out of control. We don't have any control over it. So the first thing that we do is we learn to control it by controlling the environment that the feelings are in. And the environment is the body and its surroundings and the mind. And when the body and the mind are, uh, let us say, directing the feelings out of coming out of terror, out of the sadness, out of frustration, into a feeling of safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied, successful, and wealthy, overflowing with good feelings. So this is how the practice works. And when we begin to do that, we recognize that we can control the feelings. And we do control the feelings with the body and the mind. And that we can begin to feel the way that we want to feel, rather than feeling the way that we are kind of forced feel based upon the circumstances of the moment and our old habitat and how we respond to things. So what do you think? Is this making sense for you? Yeah, absolutely. You've gotten quiet. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm listening. <laughs> so I think today we were... Uh supposed to talk a little bit more about how the mind works, if I recall correctly. Yes, well, this is exactly how the mind works, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, the mind itself 
is in various states. And the various states of mind are based upon the, um, the combination of feelings and the attitude that we have. The attitude of the winner versus the attitude of the loser. And so you could say then that that, that attitude is the forerunner or it's the way the mind is leaning. Mm. So you can imagine this very much like a tree when it is cut down good loggers know exactly where that tree is going to fall, precisely which way it's going to fall. Why do they know that? It's because they've cut it so that it begins to lean in that direction. And then when the uh, 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 whatever properties that the tree trunk has, when those things are severed or cut, then the tree is actually going to then fall in the direction of where it's leaning. Well, this is why we call it attitude, in fact, is the attitudes are the leaning of the mind. Which way is the mind leaning? Because that's the way the mind is going to fall into discursive thought and feelings. So, in a way, this is exactly how the mind works. It starts with these intentions, it starts with the, this leaning, it starts with this niggle or uh, an inclination. There's many different language words mm -hmm. that we can use to point at this, but what it actually is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a word for it. But the mind does lean, it does have tendencies, and, and that is based upon the attitudes that we have. And so the postman can come to the door and one person uh, has the attitude of being a victim uh, and she'll leave the front room and go to the other part of the house. Somebody else has the attitude of, oh, my prince has come. And so she goes and jumps the door open. She's very glad to see the person, right? So you can see that all of that kind of behavior and all of those feelings came with the attitude that we had. Mm -hmm. That this is the, the fact the Buddha taught, says it like this, that the mind is the forerunner for everything. In the time of the Brahmins, just like, in fact, I've seen this now, this is actually how laws are written, is, is that the actual behavior, the actual wrong behavior is a really, really big deal worthy of going to court. And the example is, it's like something written down on uh, a carving of wood or in stone. And it's permanent. Your permanent record is your behavior. You got a DUI, that. DUI is going to stay there, okay, with a date, but it's going to stay there. Now, the next one is that our speech, our speech is not so strong. That speech is like um, writing it on paper or drawing it on the sand, that it'll last a while, but it doesn't have nearly the impact. But the mind is like drawing in the air or drawing on water, that while you're drawing it, it's lost. It's gone. Now, this was an old teaching that you still see quite common. Our laws are written around behavior, not about what's in someone's mind. But in fact, we don't know how to read minds. People have been giving a whole lot of money pretending that they knew how to read <laughs> But one thing is for sure, we don't know what's in the mind of another person. That's something that Victor Chan Po just drilled into me, that you do not know what's in their mind look closely then at their language and their behavior. 
that fit in exactly with the psychology training that I'd already had, was to observe, to watch, to note, to listen, to ask the question, how's your practice, and let the student give you just what they need to hear. <laughs> and so this whole point then of, of observing also means that we need to observe ourselves too. What is my attitudes about things? Can I change my attitude? Can I actually practice to change my attitude by giving myself happy, wholesome thoughts? Thoughts of success will begin to change the attitude, telling ourselves, I can grow up. I am victim. Now, I am not a victim. I don't need anything. I'm okay right now, which is all has to do with that feeling of satisfaction. So we can actually begin to talk ourselves into the feeling of being a winner, being top dog, as Fish uh, Girls would talk about it, that we're no longer the underdog on our back, helpless, winning. Now we're standing strong, barking. Dead, because we're no longer on the bottom of life. And so this has to be practiced, and it is actually very quick in the mind, this attitude of am I a loser or am I a winner? And this is in the Pali, the Sama Sankapa, it's a skill to be developed along with right effort. But in fact, in the beginning, the effort is a lot of trouble. But after we get the attitude, after we get our mojo, then the very same uh, things to do now are easy to do. An example of that is mom uh, goes into the kitchen, sees the trash needs to be taken out and tells her grandson or her son to go take out the, grand, the trash. It's your job to do. Family business. Your job. Take out the trash. And so he moans and groans and picks up the trash and takes it out, maybe loses a piece along the way, but at least he got the job done. Okay. Next scenario, a few days later, he waltzes into the kitchen before mom gets home and he sees the trash needs to be taken out. And he says, hot dog, mom will be really happy if I take the trash out now. And so he picks it up out and takes it out to the road, not nearly as much work as it was the day or two before. What was the difference? His attitude. In one case, he was a child being told by the, by the parent, which is the dialogue that Byrne talks about, and for it also between the superego and the id, or between the parent and the child in the mind. But what we're actually doing here is we're getting that adult going which in uh, Freud's language would be the ego, get the mojo going, become the winner, and take over between the parent and the child so that you can actually have the, the, the parent inside stop criticizing and start nurturing again the way that mommies are supposed to nurture rather than criticize. And so we actually change that mindset through uh, through sati, through mindfulness, to wake up and recognize, oh, I'm being hard on myself, let me be gentle on myself. Instead of saying meditation is hard, we can say, no, it's really, really easy. It's just an attitude change. 
That's all it takes is just to recognize that we can change our attitude if we can change the way we feel. And we can change the way we feel if we can change the way that we respond to the body by being conscious of it and taking control of the breathing. And we can do that if we can learn to control the mind, to focus the mind on the here now of the body and the feelings and the attitude that we have right here, right now. This is how the mind works. Now, this basically is all about how to stay out of unwholesome thoughts is by intentionally bringing in wholesome thoughts. And so this is basically all about the second noble truth and where the second noble truth comes from is the cause of suffering. And the cause of suffering is because the mind itself needs some adjustments, which we've been talking about. And so when we expand the second noble truth, we expand it into the Buddhist teaching of dependent origination or Paticca Samuppada. Uh, it actually has 12 steps, which we will cover in detail soon enough. But that you could basically say Paticca Samuppada is the way that the mind works, both when it is broken by not growing up and what it works when it's working correctly and properly. That basically you can think of the mind as a clock that over the years has gotten dusty and dirty and it loses time and it loses track and it stops and all of this kind of stuff. And what we're going to do is we're going to clean our own clock. We're going to take the gunk out. We're going to clean out the dust. We're going to oil the thing correctly and get it all cleaned out. And then life ticks along just fine. And so this is the teaching of the teacher Samuppada is to get the de details of it. But you can see that the teacher Samuppada actually starts with ignorance and ends with dukkha. But then you look at the second noble truth and you say that dukkha, the, the cause of dukkha are greed, ill will, and uh, delusion. Uh, moha loha dosa, and that the Paticca Samuppada then, the beginning is ignorance, and the end of it is dukkha, and right there in the middle of it is greed and ill will, which is the feelings, I like it, I don't like it. And so when we understand that, we can recognize, oh, Paticca Samuppada is nothing but the teaching of how the mind works to give, uh, to give rise to the second noble truth, which is the cause of dukkha, and the result of that cause is dukkha. And that we can uh, live and maintain the third noble truth in this moment by practicing anapanasati correctly and see what the mind is doing so that we can tweak this uh, thing. Now, one of the ways of understanding the Paticca Samuppada, which we'll talk about later, is that we teach it in forward order. This causes this, causes this, causes this, causes this, causes dukkha. But the way that it's practiced is in reverse order because the, uh, this, 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 this is the time scale. How fast are you in waking up to see which what you're doing in this instant. And when we're slow, we wind up at the end of it. 
And so the process is to get the mind quick so that we can come up to a particular point that's really valuable so that we can do something about it. And then when the mind gets even quicker than that, then we can back up even to what's really going on within uh, the situation so that we have some choices about how we manage things. So this would be um, in the beginning in the beginning of practice, we're all the way to step 12, and, and sometimes we wake up at step 11 and 10. But the right place to wake up is at step five and six. That's when we're actually aware of how we feel and how they contact us. Then we go further back into step four of understanding perception and how that stuff happens. Then we go back to consciousness and along with that, we begin to understand that this Sankara, the old past, our habit systems, is what influences our perception to give rise to what's happening in this moment. It's not real. It's how we interpreted reality. So we'll talk about all the details of this later. But right now, this is the introduction to how the mind works. It works because ignorantly, we uh, choose to like things that we don't have. And if we want something that we don't have and you cling to something that we don't have, that means that we feel insecure without it. And that's dukkha. Mm -hmm. That's how the mind works. Or if we have an, an irritation or some bad news and we don't like it and we can't do anything about it, then we have to put up with it. And that's dukkha. Having to put up with something that's difficult to put up with. And the ignorance around both of those is to the ignorance of, hey, I could change this if I knew how, or I could change this because I do know how. I don't have to be stuck in wanting something that I don't have or hating to put up with something that I uh, have to put up with that there is ill will and fear and greed in all of those things is a mess. But if we can wake up and see what's going on, we can choose whether I want that thing or not, because I'm not going to get it. All I have to do is stop wanting it. <laughs> That's the easy part. And the reason that I can stop wanting it is because I've already got everything I need. I'm already satisfied. Right now is good enough. And so that's the basic introduction to the teacher Samapada, the really the deep way of how the mind works. Um, and so I think that this would be a good time to finish with this because you've gotten quite a lot about how to practice James Brown. <laughs> I knew I got that reaction from you. Right, that's, that's how it goes. <laughs> so you keep practicing that. And see if it doesn't put a smile on. <laughs> so any any closing remarks? See you next time. Pardon? See you next time. All right, all right. We'll see you soon. <laughs>